Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Jennifer Reich will join us to discuss calling the shots. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, with recent outbreaks of preventable disease, the focus has shifted to the people who have not decided to be vaccinated. Well, why is this so? Well, joining us today on the program to discuss this issue is Professor Jennifer Reich. Professor Reich is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's the author of award-winning books such as Fixing Families and the Child Welfare System, and is the co-editor of Reproduction and Society. She has penned the new book, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. And uh, Professor Reich, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. I'm thrilled to be with you. Uh, well, certainly our pleasure. Certainly a very fascinating book you've written here, uh, Calling the Shots. And would you explore really why is it that some parents uh, choose to not vaccinate? Curious, how did you become interested in this issue? So all of my research really looks at the questions of how individuals and families look at information, how they uh, view expertise, make decisions for their children and themselves around questions of law and policy and health care. And when I finished really looking at the child welfare system and what it means to rehabilitate yourself in a court system, I started thinking about where else was it that parents were really thinking about law in their daily lives and interpreting science and expertise to make decisions that they really believe make them good parents. And at the time I started this, which was, I started thinking about this more than a decade ago, uh, we were starting to see early signs of parents rejecting va- uh, recommended, recommended vaccinations, um, those that are required for school attendance. And I started, thought it was sort of an interesting new opportunity to start to think through how is it sci- um, parents are, are looking at science, how they're weighing expert opinions, and then how they're interpreting all this information, challenging pediatricians, asking for advice, and then making what they think are the best decisions for their children. Is this an issue that's particularly prone to having individuals scrutinize more than more than others? You know, in, in the larger book and in my work, I really start with the premise that all parents are really motivated by wanting their children to be successful and healthy. And I start with that premise, which I think is actually worth noting, because a lot of folks who write about parents who don't vaccinate, I think, assume that the parents are ignorant, that they don't take disease seriously, that they don't understand what they're talking about. And what I find talking to parents is they spend a huge amount of time and energy reading information, talking to other parents, reading websites, looking for, some, looking for new kinds of information, and really asking questions both about are these vaccines really safe and also are they really necessary given how rare it is that we see vaccine-preventable diseases at this time, which in many ways is a sign of the vaccine's success themselves. But they really ask these questions together, I think, to try to weigh out what they think are risks, what they think are benefits, and decide what they think is the best option for their children. Now, it's probably also worth noting that 
part of the way they view this is they're very committed to a view of themselves as experts of their own children. So they trust their own judgment about their children more than they trust federal advisory boards, scientific panels, members of the CDC, or even pediatricians they may only spend 10 or 15 minutes with once or twice a year. So they really see themselves as best able to make this decision. And they also really believe that each child is unique, each child has a unique immune system, and that each child should really have a personalized experience of pediatric care, and that extends to vaccination. Is it just the case that this is one of those issues where the decisions not only affect their own child, but really affect the group as a whole? And so as a result, it becomes more of a contentious issue as opposed to, say, discipline. I think that there's a lot of ways that this is an individual decision that has far-reaching consequences that often are not really considered by parents making these choices. So we know that infectious disease is different than other kinds of personal choices people make about discipline, about nutrition, about lots of other, uh, lots of other you know, daily decisions. Infectious disease um, ha- raises the risks for lots of children. The most common answer I hear is, if everyone just makes their own choices, and if you like vaccines and you vaccinate your kids, then why do my children present a risk to your kids? And that's fundamentally, I think, a misunderstanding of the limitations of, uh, that are intrinsic to vaccine policy. So what we know is that 100% of vaccination in the community is impossible. We will always have children who are poor candidates for vaccination because of some kind of health issue. We know that for a small percentage of children, they'll never seroconvert after vaccination, and so they may not develop full immunity. Some immunity wanes with age, and also some children are just too young to be vaccinated at the very same ages that they're most likely to be most, de- you know, most detrimentally affected by infection. And so the kinds of ways that parents, I think, conceptualize this as an individual choice for individual children probably ignores the way that this is situated in a much broader conversation about not just what, how do we take care of our own children, but how do we take care of everybody's children. Is the, the major distrust then of, of vaccines that this is just something unnatural? And There's a huge portion of this that's about the construction of the natural. So uh, when I first started this research, I imagined, uh, based on everything I had read and heard, that you know a lot of parents just didn't understand uh, that, these vac- that these vaccines prevent illnesses that are quite serious or that they don't really think that these risks are real. What I found in talking to parents, which was surprising, was that many parents I spoke with believe that they, in many ways that they're not afraid of infection because they see in infection is generating a natural kind of immunity that they saw as superior to some kind of immunity that was generated by a vaccine. So they drew lots of distinctions between natural immunity and then what they termed artificial immunity. Um, although when I talk to immunologists and experts in the field, they say the distinction is not doesn't make a lot of sense um, in terms of the immune, there's one immune system and it responds similarly to different stimuli. But that um, they also weighed things like lifestyle, nutrition, the ability to practice immune-promoting uh, you know, daily living skills in terms of organic food or extended breastfeeding, and lots of ways that parents view themselves as able to manage risk of disease and also manage severity. Is uh, the second part of this distrust just that the, the vaccines are sort of being forced upon them by other agencies? One of the ways we should you know, remind ourselves about vaccines is we have no forced vaccination in the United States. What we have, though, is a system in every state that says that for children who want to access public resources through schools or child care settings, they need to participate in community health so that by using public resources, they also have to you know, pay into public, public health generally. And part of that logic, which dates back to the very first vaccine laws, is that when you put children in a schoolhouse together, you increase the risk of infection. And so by attending school, you've already increased 
increased risk to other children. So the only mechanism of enforcement we use is through enrollment in schools. And so obviously this doesn't apply to parents who make other choices for homeschooling um, or alternative kinds of schools. So there's no forced vaccination, and I don't find parents the most distrustful of that. But what they do question is the way that claims of vaccine safety are made and uh, and perhaps have uneven understanding of what the uh, the, the federal advisory boards do. They raise important questions, I think, um, about what it means to have a handful, of, you know, five to seven vaccine pharmaceutical companies that manufacture every vaccine in the country, that all of public health rests on for-profit corporations, and that we expect those companies to be in many ways self-monitoring and guardians of public health in ways that there's other examples from medications that they may not be the, the best and most trusting source for that responsibility. So I think parents ask questions about what the limitations are in terms of how we understand safety. What's important to remember is in the U.S., this is what we have. This is the system we have, and we know that vaccines work. There's a fairly rigorous, I think, regulation and inspection system in place that's largely invisible to most Americans. I think um, the CDC does a pretty bad job of communicating how ACIP sets the schedule, how testing happens, how there's constant monitoring of safety and efficacy over time. And I didn't know that when I started either. It was really through interviewing members of these boards and vaccine researchers and public health officials that I learned information that I think all parents would feel better for knowing. So is it just that the, the misinformation, if you will, is easier to get at than the correct information? I think that for a long time, vaccines were, were unquestionably, um, unquestioningly good. So it's not to say that we haven't always had distrust of vaccines. We've, we've seen distrust of vaccines dating back to this very first smallpox vaccine. So there's a portion that's you know, consistent. We will always have a tension between our individual choices and our collective responsibilities, and that's largely unresolvable because it's a core American tension. But really, when we look and I, when we look back, and when I speak to members of generations who lived through polio as children, who remember parents being terrified to let their kids go to a swimming pool in the summer, there was no question that vaccines were life-saving and that they were an intrinsic positive. And so, really, I think the companies that make them, the doctors that recommend them, the agencies uh, that set the schedules, really didn't have to do very much work to communicate because fear of disease communicated so much. I don't think that's the story today. I think parents really need a lot more information about what goes into vaccines, how they're made, how they're tested, how they're monitored. We saw this year uh, that the ACIP chose to withdraw the nasal spray for the flu vaccine because it wasn't shown as effective. And that's a really important sign that there's constant monitoring of how are these vaccines working? Are they protecting in the ways that we promised? Are the data that were initially viewed holding up over time as more and more people use these products? And so there is a constant monitoring process that I think is largely invisible um, and that isn't doing very much to encourage trust amongst parents. So should the parents be able to call the shots? What we've seen since the Disneyland measles outbreak at the end of 2014 is states looking at how to tighten their legal requirements, noting that more and more parents are exercising exemptions, um, which are legally allowed processes that allow parents to claim either a religious or philosophical belief that um, exempts them from vaccine requirements but allow their children to still enroll in schools. So we've seen across the country governments looking specifically, California was the most dramatic in removing both 
both the possibility of a personal belief exemption and also the possibility of a religious exemption out of state law. And it's worth noting that now California, Mississippi, and West Virginia are the only states in the country that do not allow a religious exemption. Every other state still does. So we've seen this kind of regulatory tightening. I think what's also important, though, to think through is what's motivating parents. So there will always be a small group of parents who are unpersuadable. I've spoken to parents who don't even believe vaccines work, who think polio is disappearing by itself, and that the vaccine got credit for it. There are certain parents for whom this is an un there's no argument that will be persuasive on this front, but it's numerically a very small portion of the population. What we know, though, is that as many as 20 or 25 percent of American parents right now are choosing to delay or reject some vaccines and accept others. And when you mention a slow vaccine schedule, I think this is exactly how it plays out. Parents want to customize timing. They want to customize administration, and they really want to choose which vaccines are important and why. The problem with that when I speak with pediatricians and health researchers is that a lot of the vaccines are placed on the schedule because they worked well in combination, because they improve immunity and immunogenicity when given in combination, that the timing is really built around when are these children most vulnerable for the worst outcomes of infection. So delaying some of these vaccines is, is it's probably important to still use them, but really delaying something, for example, like the DPT vaccine, which includes the pertussis component, becomes less relevant after the age of one, since younger babies are the, are 50, have a 50% chance of being hospitalized if infected. So we can really look at these kinds of consumption questions and ask, what's driving parents? One of the ways I look at this, though, is I really ask this question, what does it mean for parents uh, to experience the norms of parenting and to experience the culture of parenting and also the culture of healthcare at a moment when everyone is telling all of us that we should individualize everything. We need more personalized medicine. We need more um, personalized, you know, genomics. We can really diagnose anything at a, you know, a molecular level. Every person is entirely unique, and you can have, you know, genetic tests to know what kinds of foods you should be eating. You can track your fitness. Uh, we have this sort of individualistic culture that extends into parenting, too, through things like school choice, perfect plans for tutoring or college mission. We have lots of ways of telling parents they're personally responsible for every decision. And so in many ways, I'm sympathetic that the parents who distrust vaccine come to this in a larger landscape that's telling them that they should claim personal responsibility for everything. And I think they've taken that charge seriously. And that's why we're seeing increasing numbers of parents who are rejecting vaccine schedules as they're set by the experts. Do you think uh, this is a particularly endemic problem to the U.S., where is this, there is this sort of individualistic culture? Do you see this in other developed nations or where around the world? I really imagined when I started that in countries that had universal health care, who had a more collective vocabulary for raising children, who took better care of children with disabilities, that we wouldn't see this in the same way. And it turns out I was wrong. So um, I've talked to, to scholars and researchers and journalists in Germany and Australia and the UK and, and the Netherlands, and they're describing very similar patterns that this individualist culture that has really permeated lots of aspects um, of 
of life in the in sort of in the global north that we see um, white college educated parents abroad behaving very similarly to those here. And it's worth noting that the parents who are most likely to reject vaccines tend to be white college educated and have higher than average family incomes. So we know that those patterns hold true. And we also see lots of ways that the conversations around distrust of things like GMOs and pharmaceutical companies are traveling, uh, that rhetoric is traveling um, cross-nationally. And those same countries are using that same framework and in many ways raising the same questions about the naturalness of vaccinations and the trustworthiness of pharmaceutical companies. And so what's the way forward then? I think the most fruitful, so I should say there's lots of health researchers and lots of people who specialize in health communications who are trying to come up with different strategies for communicating health information. And that's not what I do. And lots of people are working on those questions. But I think having studied this question for more than a decade and really thinking through the different nuances of this, I think there's a few ways we could start to sort of move this forward. I think the most fruitful ground is probably to focus on the 20 or 25% of parents who are, they don't see themselves as anti-vaccine, but they see themselves as uncomfortable and distrustful of what we have. And those parents are largely persuadable. They're uncomfortable. They frequently say that this just feels like too much too soon, and they're not sure babies' bodies can handle so many shots at once. And I recognize that intuitively, as a parent, that feels right. It does feel like a lot. Babies do feel really small and vulnerable. And so we should be able to talk about those concerns and look at them directly, rather than just dismissing those concerns as not supported by science. I think there's opportunities to bridge those conversations. Maybe without even thinking about regulation, we could also look at what does it mean societally when we really encourage parents to focus on their own children but not worry about other people's children in the same community. And it's not unique to healthcare. We can see this in the way we have unequal funding for elementary schools in the same community, the way we've privatized fundraising for children, the way we unequally allocate opportunities to children starting very, very early in life. We accept that as a kind of good parenting, that if you can get your child a bigger piece of the pie, you're doing well. And that same logic is really damaging our ability to have people believe in public health as a public responsibility. So I think that's another avenue we could talk through and think through. And then in terms of what we need to do on a regulatory level, states are looking closely at what it means to at least make the process of opting out as complicated as taking your child to a doctor's appointment. And there is evidence that the more cumbersome the exemption process is, fewer people are motivated to use it. And so there are opportunities for states to really think through both how they represent all the people in their state and how they respect where parents are coming from and also make sure that all children who attend school are safe. Well, certainly uh, much to think about. Certainly a fascinating book, uh, Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject uh, Vaccines, and uh, the author is Professor Jennifer Reich. And uh, Professor Reich, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.